Well, tonight we are on part three of the series we've been doing on the core values of the kingdom of God, also known as the Beatitudes. And um, tonight we're going to go ahead and, and wrap this up. If you, uh, you need to get the uh, outline, it's uh, on prayermissionschurch.com. It's available there. And so tonight we're going to cover the last three core values uh, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted for righteousness' sake. And as I was praying over tonight and thinking about the core values, I've been trying to give a little bit of a, in, interpretive keys um, and some um, deeper thoughts, uh, just like we were saying the last few weeks, taking this more like, a, like a, a Bible school class and a little greater depth of teaching. But one of the things that I like to, to draw out about the Sermon on the Mount in general and the Beatitudes, the core values, is that when Jesus is giving these values and he's giving the um, way that believers are supposed to live in, in Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7, he's, he's laying out the treatise of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, what... Uh, he's driving for is uh, the last few verses of, of Matthew chapter seven, which I just wanna come out of the gate. I just wanna read these verses and, and comment about the value system of the kingdom of God and how essential it is that we live this value system. Um, I, I was talking with uh, Alicia, my assistant this week, and I was uh, putting together some things to go online about the, the Beatitudes. And I was talking about how the Beatitudes, the core values are Jesus' value system, the expected value system of the kingdom. The close, closer we are to living these value system, this value system, the closer we are to Jesus. The further we are from living this value system, the further we are from Jesus because the values are what he values and they're his values. And she's probably heard me teach that half dozen times at least, read my book and everything. Can you imagine that? And she said, that's so interesting because I've always thought of the core values not as a value system, just as good suggestions. Just good suggestions about how Christians ought to live maybe. And, and I've, as I thought about it, I, I thought, you know, that's kind of how I understood it growing up. These be attitudes, the attitudes you should be, instead of the actual value system that Jesus is calling believers to live by. And so he, he pushes through the entire Sermon on the Mount to this last bit of teaching, which I just want to start with Matthew 7 and just, I want you to see where he was going with this so that we can get our minds around how essential this value system is. So he says in verse 24 of Matthew 7, as he's concluding the sermon, he says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hears these sayings, specifically talking about the Sermon on the Mount, specifically talking about those core values and the, the lifestyle that he lays out in Matthew 6 and 7, 5, 6, and 7, uh, he says, whoever hears these sayings and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And the key is, the hearing of this value system and the living of the value system. It cannot simply be where we just sort of see the truths of the word and then we say, well, those are really good things. And then we allow the culture or the political climate or you know the, the age that we live in to dictate to us the values that we're gonna live by or the, 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 the nation that we live in or any of that. The values that we're to live by as followers of Jesus Christ are the values that he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes it super clear that if you live by these values, you hear these and you do them, 
You're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I just want to point this out. He says, when the rains come, when the flood came, when the winds blew, he didn't say if, he said when. And he's not simply talking about the individual challenges of our lives. He is talking about those, those count, but he's talking about in an ultimate way when the earth is shaking. Are you hearing me? When like what Isaiah said, when the earth is reeling and tottering because of the, the challenges of, of the corruption of sin, He's talking about when the winds come in an ultimate way, when the, when the rains come and the floods come in an ultimate way. He's talking about the challenges the earth will experience even at the end of the age. He says that person who lives these values, they'll be founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Notice, they heard the sayings but they did not do them. They may have even agreed with them. And isn't this really the challenge that we all face? Because we are so educated on Christian teachings. We have so much available to us. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, a preacher saying, we're educated far beyond our level of obedience. And man, that, I remember hearing that word and it just, oh, it just pierced me. And I thought, oh, I don't want to live knowing what truth is, but not actually walking it out. I want these things to be real in me. I want, it, I, I want there to be authenticity to how I live you know, day to day. I, I want it to be the same with the people in my, in, that, that are around me in, in my work environment or the person I meet at the grocery store or my wife at home or that person that I'm, you know, getting cut off by in the traffic jam. Hallelujah. I mean, I want it to be the same. I want the values of the kingdom to be so rooted in me that I'm living the way Jesus prescribed. Well, he says that foolishness is hearing these words, maybe even agree with them, and you don't actually live them out. And he says, when the storms come and when the winds blow and when the floods come, he says, that house gets blown down with a great fall. And I just think that this is instructive from the mouth of Jesus. And, and, and James would go on and say, we've got to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But it's so instructive from the mouth of Jesus that it really doesn't profit to just hear the word and not do it. That we actually have to be doers of, the, of these values. They actually have to be a part of our lives, how we live day in and day out. And I was thinking about the the way that the earth is shaking and, and the, the way that the things are progressing in, in the culture and in society and how the scripture talks about how there were gonna be, there'll be many shakings and all the way up until the return of the Lord, there's gonna be much tumult and, and much shaking. And I was thinking about 2 Timothy 3. I'm just giving you this as a little introduction tonight. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of self boasters and he goes on and he lists like a dozen characteristics of how people will act in the in the generation in which the Lord returns and when you read those it's like he's reading the newspaper is like he's reading the social media feed from 2020 I mean it's just so vivid how those those details of what Paul said would, would happen. He prophesied under the unction of the Holy Spirit what it would be like at the end of the age. When he, when he unpacks that in 2 Timothy 3, it's so clear. It, it looks like the, the, the hour that we live in, but, but here's the point I wanted to make, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get into our last three core values tonight. Thinking about that ultimate shaking, that ultimate blowing of the wind. When you look at the, the lifestyle that Paul said people will be living at the end of the age. And you contrast that with Jesus' value system. It becomes very, very clear that the value system that Jesus prescribed at the onset of the church is the value system that believers must live at the end of this age. 
because that value system stands in direct opposition to how the unregenerate will be living in the earth before the Lord returns. You can actually look at the list that Paul makes and you can, you can correspond an alternate value that Jesus gave with virtually every single one of the things that Paul unpacks in 2 Timothy 3. I'd encourage you to do that and it will really emblazon on your heart how this is not only just some good idea, you know, maybe you should act like this if you're a believer. This is the prescribed values for Christians at the beginning of the church, throughout every era of the church, and especially at the end of the age, because this value system stands exactly in opposition of how un, the unregenerate will be running things in the earth at the, uh, before the Lord returns. So I wanted to emphasize that, that this is the prescribed value system for believers in every age, but especially in the generation in which the Lord returns. All right, good. All right, let's look at our first value tonight, which first of three, these are the last three. Pure in heart, Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Of course, it has the same format that every one of the other values has. There's a blessing that's described and then there's a reward that goes with that blessing. And then there's this, this value that we're to live out. And, and I remember for years uh, reading this and thinking, blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, s sexual immorality is out. No sexual immorality. Okay, I got it. I got that value. Next value. And, and then I remember studying this and realizing, oh, he's not only talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about a quality of purity on the inside that has with it a reward of revelation that's beyond what any of you and I can even dream of. And this idea of being pure in heart, for sure it applies to sexual purity, but it is about the purity of what moves you on the inside. It's about the purity of the way that you think that motivates your actions. Pure in heart is about your ambitions, being pure in heart. The heart of the man being what, what composes the, the, the soul, the, the inner part, the, the deep desire, the longings. The purity that God is after from all of us is purity in the inward parts. It's what David said of the Lord. You desire truth in the inner parts. He, and it's what, it's what Samuel said about the Lord when he was going to prophesy over David. He says, every man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so he says, blessed are the pure in heart because they're going to see God. And I realized this, that purity of heart, it starts with being honest about the reality of your inner life. Being honest about the reality of your inner life. Because you could, you know, you, you could hear that verse and you've heard it probably for years if you've been saved any amount of time you go pure in heart yeah we got to be pure in heart okay good i got it pure in heart and, and and the lord goes wait wait don't don't move on so quickly he goes what's moving you what motivates you what what are the, what's the seed of your passions what's going on in the inner life and, and he just goes be honest Think about it. Consider what are your ambitions and what is giving energy to what you're going after. What's motivating your ambitions? That's what Jesus is talking about. Having pure ambitions because the, the normal way that people function in, in our society, in our culture, in, in, in America is they're in whatever they're into 
for the purpose of getting something for themselves. Every man in the flesh is going after what's in it for me. And Christianity is the, the exact opposite of that. We're not called to, to get everything we can for ourselves. You know, get all you can and can all you get. We're, we're not called to live like that. We're actually called to lay down our lives for others and for the Lord. Following in Jesus' example for us. So this, this idea of purity of heart, what it does is it sifts our, our thoughts and our intentions. Why? It's not so much purity of heart. You hear that word purity and you think it's about, it's about actions. No, no, no. It's, about, it's not so much about what you do. It's about why you did what you did. Do you feel that? Because you could have right actions with the wrong motive and it's sin. And, and see, that's exactly the problem with the Pharisees in the first century. Jesus rebuked them on the basis of the fact that they had many righteous actions, but inside they were false. They were, they were doing what they were doing in order to serve their lust for, for position, their, their hunger for power, and they were actually serving themselves even in their righteous actions. They even figured out how to make the festivals of the Lord an opportunity to make money through the money changers that were you know, renting space in the temple courts and through having to purchase sacrifices. You know, they had to come and they'd have to purchase the, the, the lamb to, to slay for the Passover. And then what they had to do is they had to, they had to change the money. They couldn't use any of the currencies that were traded outside of Israel. So you had to change the money and then they upcharged it on the change, right? So they're making money for the temple. And then that lamb that they're buying for the Passover, what well, had to be a perfect lamb. So that lamb is gonna be way more expensive than just Joe's lamb shop down the street. They even figured out how to use the feasts of the Lord for their own position, power, lusts, and desires. And Jesus rebukes them soundly uh, when he's speaking to them. He says, you know, woe to you. Matthew 23, 25, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You got all your laws on the outside making everything look good, but inside it's completely dead. He goes, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. And he's using that example because he's speaking of the, the, the cup and the dish as the metaphor of the heart. Cleanse the inside and the outside will take care of itself. And that's where this issue of purity of heart, it, it really is about being real inside, just being honest. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I wrote this, motives are challenging. Because who truly knows the heart? Only God. Jeremiah 17, he says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. So this, the fallen nature and the flesh, all of a sudden on the inside, we're, we're, we're always maneuvering and, and we're doing things for our own benefit. We're, we're even doing nice things. We're even treating people nice to maybe get one up and, and, and we're trained to act that way. And the Lord goes, no, I want ambitions that are completely crucified. I want motives that are completely pure. And, and so I go, God, I don't know how, you know, I, I can remember just going, I don't know how to fix my, my wrong motives. I don't know how to, to fix the wrong ambitions of my own soul. And he goes, I've got a way for you. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119, by keeping it according to your word. Your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
right? So Hebrews chapter four, here's a, a, such a powerful truth about the scripture. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living. I love that about the Bible. Don't you love that? When you, you open the Bible, you read the verse for the 1,000th and 1th time, and the previous 1,000 times you didn't see what you saw, and that 1,001, it goes boom, and it explodes. You go, I never saw that. I've read that so many times. It's living. It's alive. I love that about the scripture. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, all the way into the inward parts, is what he's saying. He says, and it is a, I love this, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And here's the way that you can, here's the way that you can get your motives sifted and get your heart purified. It is literally by pouring the word of God into your soul and then judging your intentions according to the word. It discerns your own thoughts. It discerns your own intentions. I I can't discern my own intentions, but the word of God can. And when I hold it up in front of me like a mirror, it will show me, am I doing this for me? Am I doing this for God? Am I I doing this to get a one-up? Is there some sort of way I'm trying to maneuver or manipulate? What's going on? The word will show me my own intentions and discern it for me. And he says, there's nothing hidden. He goes on, he says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. Everything is naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give give an account. And the point is, if we will allow the word to fill us, the word will also reveal us. It's powerful. And so here's what I realize about people that, they, that you know, they kind of get going in the, in the Christian walk and they kind of read the word a bit and they kind of get the 100 verses down, whatever they are, you know, John 3.16, so God, God, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. They kind of get the main ones down and they think, I got it. And then they, what happens is they got those, you know, main and plain ones down and then they go a long time after that initial stage of going after it and they, they listen to preaching, but they don't study the word themselves. They listen to the podcast, or, but they don't actually get in the word and read it themselves and study it and underline it and pour over it. And what happens is the only time they're hearing the word is when someone else is speaking it, and that has an effect, but that's mostly just about reading the menu. <laughs> When, when you're listening to someone teach you the word, they're reading a menu to you that you're supposed to take and then you order from that menu with the Lord and you digest the word for yourself. And when they don't do that, all of a sudden they get real funny with the way that they perceive reality. All of a sudden, their discernment begins to leave them. All of a sudden they start thinking things that aren't real because they're not perceiving their own heart by the word, they're perceiving it just by external things and their own reasoning. And I've watched this over and over and over in 25 years of ministry. When people get away from pouring the word into their own soul, all of a sudden they begin to lose discernment on what's real. And they can't discern their own intentions. They can't discern their own ambitions. And so the word... It is what settles us. It's what seats us. It's what causes our soul to be sifted in terms of in our ambitions and our intentions. I I like to say it this way. The, The word, it's not only the standard that we're to live by. It's also the standard setter. What do I mean by that? It's not simply uh, the, like if you think about the standard, the, the thermometer that tells us w- what the temperature is, what the standard should be. It's also the thermostat that actually causes us to, to move to that temperature. It tells us on the inside what the standard is. It sets something in our our hearts of of God's righteous standard in our inner life so that we can be conformed to that standard. As I mentioned, that impurity in our hearts, which is what really the sin of the Pharisees was, that that really is the chief sin. 
of the Pharisees, that's hypocrisy. When we, when we, on the outside, we clean it up, but on the inside, it, it, it's still a mess. Now listen, everybody is in process before you get under condemnation. Let me just steal that condemnation from you. Everybody's in process. Everybody's heart is on a journey. Here's the key. It's what we talked about last week, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Are you leaning in for righteousness or are you trying to set up boundaries so that you can be secure and comfortable in the area that you are, in the place that you are? And you, know, you, don't, you can sort of buffet yourself in your compromise. And one of the things I notice about people when they're, they're, they're comfortable and they're not, they're not pressing towards righteousness is they will easily dismiss scriptures that are convicting, like, blessed are the pure in heart. They go, well, he didn't really mean completely pure. He meant, you know, mostly, you know, kind of clean. No, he didn't. He meant pure, but what he does is he looks at the lean of the heart. What's the direction that you're pressing? What are you leaning toward in the grace of God? He, he, he's not looking at just like, you know, were you perfect or not? He's actually looking, did you, did you lean towards righteousness? Did you resist? Yeah, maybe, maybe you stumbled a bit, but did you repent? What's the lean? What's the thrust of your life? There's not one person who's perfect, but to have a pure heart, many times having a pure heart is when you sin, you immediately come and you address that sin. God, I'm sorry. I don't want that. When you, when you speak in a way that's dishonoring to your spouse or, or agitated with a coworker, that you're, the, the inside, your desire for righteousness, on the inside it says, no, 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 that's not how you want to live. And on the inside you go, oh God, that, that lean, that desire for purity in the inward parts that will manifest in righteous actions, that's what God's asking for. He's asking for that lean, that, that, that desire, that, that thrust of your life to go that direction. Now, let me just talk about this. He says, the pure in heart, they're gonna see God. Man, that's a good one. These all have good promises, but that is a really good promise. I just want you just to think that through just for a minute. I mean, the, the idea that we who are, you know, broken, fallen, we were cut off and rejected from God. I mean, it would be enough. The, the grace of God would be magnanimous if he just rescued us so that we didn't have to spend eternity in destruction. Wait, wait, wait. I mean, just think it through for a minute. He could have rescued us and put us into a, a nice place and we were just knowing there was a good God up there that took care of us. No, he, that's not what he's asked. That's not, what, that's not what Christianity is. That's not what he's after. He says, no, no, no. As you, as you are leaning towards righteousness, the outcome is you are gonna see God. You're gonna see me. Now, what's interesting is the way that this word see is used, it, it, we always think of visual, but it, it, it's a Hebraism, which means this. It's a, it's a Hebrew figure of speech, to see something means to possess it. Jesus said you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. So this Hebraism that he's using here where he's, he's using the word see in the sense of possess, experience, come to know and encounter. He's saying blessed are the pure in heart. They are going to possess God. They're gonna encounter and know and interface and interact with God. And I just, I just want you to really just pause for a moment and think about that. You and I are on a collision course. If you're in Christ, we're on a collision course to see him. We're gonna look him in the eye. We're gonna look into his face. 
we're gonna experience the glory that's shining off of the face of Jesus. The Bible says that glory fills the entire New Jerusalem and it will fill, that light will light the entire earth in the age to come. You're gonna look right into that face, right into those eyes of fire. The pure in heart shall see God. There's an old Bible commentator and he, he explained how the, the lusts of the flesh are so powerful and the ambitions of the heart are so powerful in a, in a fallen nature. And then even after salvation, the renewal of the mind is such a process that there's almost nothing that can be offered to, to a human to get them feeling motivated to, to say no to those broken ambitions. And, and, and then he said, until the promises that if you purify yourself, you possess him, you see him for all that he is. I I love what John said. He goes, beloved, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we're gonna be like him. Have you thought about that day? You're gonna look him right in the eye. You're gonna look right into that face. Blessed are the pure in heart. That right there is motivation enough for me to live my 70 or 80 years, if by reason of strength on this side, to live in these days pressing, hungering for righteousness and pressing for purity on the inside getting rid of the inner judgments, the attitudes, the haughtiness, the ambitions, giving all that I am on the inside for him. That desire to see him as he is, it's the most grand, uh, shocking promise. It it goes right with uh, the, the psalmist in Psalm 24. It said, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. Oh, beloved, this is such a powerful promise. This is such an important, important promise because the issue of purity of heart is, you know, we can fake each other out, can't we? We can put on a face and, and have potentially, you know, positive actions, but God, knows what's going on on the inside. And I'm telling you, you get to that place where you realize, oh man, the, the promise that's afforded to those that are pure in heart, it, 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 will, it will make you not wanna fake it anymore. It will make you wanna get those inner issues worked out in, in a radical way, those ambitions, until you finally find yourself at Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. All right. Let's go to verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'll give a little plug. I just did three weeks on being peacemakers. So you can go online, you can look that up and grab those messages. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, for our purposes here, I'm not gonna just re-preach those three weeks. I'm actually gonna give you a, a little different depth. But I will say this, that being a peacemaker at the core of it, it's the same idea as being uh, what the Bible calls a reconciler or, or being called to the ministry of reconciliation. And so when, when you're a peacemaker, what you're actually doing is you're sacrificing yourself for the peace of others. You're laying yourself down for the reconciliation of others. And so there's, uh, I like to say this because it always impacts people. I've been saying this for years. 
but there's a radical difference between being one who keeps peace and one who makes peace. Most of the time, people who keep peace, they ignore problems. When there's a challenge, they step to the side and they just let the challenge happen. They don't want to get in the fray. I'm just trying to keep the peace. You know, a couple tempers flare and you, you just decide, well, it's just best to, just to let, let that lie. Not, don't do anything about it. Whereas a, a peacemaker would actually step in in the grace of God and go, hey, you know, I noticed there was some interaction there that it just didn't seem like we were flowing, (laughs) you know, say it your way. So how do we get that worked out? And that's the awkward hard work of being a peacemaker, stepping into the gap, into the difficulty, into the challenge, and risking yourself to actually bring others to reconciliation. Now, what I just described is level one of what it means to be a peacemaker. It's the low-hanging fruit. Being a peacemaker is so much deeper and so much more involved than that because when we think about making peace, Jesus, he's the ultimate peacemaker, right? Jesus made peace between us and God and us and one another through his cross. Colossians 1.20 says this, that God uh, worked through him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So God reconciles everything to himself through Jesus, and Jesus made peace, how? By laying himself down. This is the core of what it means to be a peacemaker, We lay down our preferences, our privileges. We lay down our desires, our ways to bring peace, uh, deliverance, healing, salvation, blessing to others. We lay ourselves down for others. Greater love is no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. That's at the core of what it means to be a peacemaker. And so this is one of the most distinguishing marks of Christians, that Christians are willing to do the difficult thing, to put themselves out, to to inconvenience themselves for the benefit and the blessing of others. See, do you see how the pure in heart goes with being a peacemaker? Because if your ambitions are God's ambitions instead of your own, then, then you'll do being a peacemaker. But if your ambitions are self and your heart isn't pure in your ambitions and in your motives, you'll never do being a peacemaker. They, they go together. And so when it, when it comes to being a peacemaker, I wrote this in the notes, we crucify our flesh and our own desires to secure the peace of others. Just as Jesus did for us, we step in and we make peace in the earth. And so what's interesting to me is how Paul uses this same style of language, uh, and he he actually draws off of Jesus' uh, um, uh, core value here. Romans 8, verse 13, he says this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And that's a critical thought because the promise about being a peacemaker is they shall be called the sons of God. And that just gives us inclination that we're going to look like the Son of God, that we're going to live in this world looking like Jesus. And so what Paul does in Romans 8 is he says this, that if you'll crucify your flesh and live by the Spirit... If you'll do that, you'll live, and as many as are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. Do you see how he ties together the same exact thought? Being a peacemaker is laying down your life, and you'll be called the sons of God. Paul says, crucifying your flesh, living by the Spirit, and you are called a son of God. Now, in the same passage in Matthew 5, by the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to give us 
some really intense instructions about how to be a peacemaker. It's, it's really the only one that you can just draw a direct line to, and he actually gives detail. It's the only one of the core values where he actually gives detail on how to walk that value out. So Matthew 5, verse 44. Now, pay attention to what he says, because he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. That phrase is really important, because he's making, he's making a connection here uh, b- between the, the core value and then this, this ex- ex- exposition here later in the chapter. So he says in verse 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Do you see the connection? Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. And then he gives us this list, and he says, do these things so that you will be a son of God. Now, let's just look at the list, because the list is like, ooh, whoa. So he says, love your enemies. Now, the way that I see what he's saying here is, he gives us one thing with three specific applications, okay? The one thing is love your enemies. Now he's gonna give us three ways to love our enemies, all right? Now I'll just give this as an aside. As a Christian, enemies are only people that see you as their enemy. We're actually not allowed to make people our enemies, Because if you're loving an enemy from your side, that's not an enemy. You're you're loving a person. You're an enemy to them. Do you see how that works? We're not even allowed to have enemies. We we love and we serve and we bless even those who spitefully use us and abuse us. We're going to find out in being persecuted here in just a moment. But so he says, love your enemies. The ones that hate you is the idea. Now, 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 how do I love them? He goes, bless those who curse you. What, what, what's he saying? Use your words. Bless those who curse you. The guy says something about you. You know what you're to say about him? A blessing. Should we just do our, all of our, do our own altar call right now? Now, just think about this. Bless those who curse you. (laughs) Praise God. That's how I feel right now. That basically, that that completely, um, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? It, It disqualifies, that's the word. It basically disqualifies my entire social media feed around politics time. When do you ever genuinely see, just think about this, one person curses this person, and this person with no sass, with no back talk, with no little hook on it, says something that blesses that person. I mean, can we just get real? Like, how different from Jesus are we really? This is at the core of being a peacemaker, that when they come at you, you don't revile in return. That's what being a peacemaker is about, laying down your life for someone else's reconciliation. Oftentimes, it's their reconciliation to God. So he says, use your words. They speak about you, use your words and bless them back. And there's, I've got so many examples, I, I, I won't go into it. I've had my own personal examples. I've got dear friends that have gone through hardships where people saying things about them that are just not true, just, un, not, just disgustingly false. And, um, and I've watched, I, I've been able to see good and bad. I've you know, seen it when guys do it really, really right and guys do it really, really wrong. Myself, being the main one. 
But if you will bless that one that's cursing you, I mean, it's not 100%, but the percentages of winning that person to the Lord go up many, many, many times. But if you return evil for evil, you can just forget about it. You can just forget about it. No peace is going to be made right there. So you use your words to bless the one that's cursing you. I've got one example I'll just give you. I remember, this is a crazy story. I remember my wife and I, we were actually praying in front of an abortion clinic on Spring Street in Atlanta, which ultimately it got shut down. Um, Long story, but let me just stay on the point. And we're out there uh, praying, and we're praying with uh, red life tape over our mouths. We're doing a Bound for Life prayer meeting. So we're just sitting there quiet. We don't, we're not saying anything to anybody. We're not violent or anything. And there are some, uh, some counter, they're, they're countering us. We weren't protesting, we were praying, but counter protesters yelling at us from directly in front of the abortion clinic. And they were holding up signs, and all the signs said all these just mean things, Adolf Hitler's fan club, like all sorts of stuff about us. That's what they were saying to us. And, and they were yelling curse words at us and all these things. And my wife is looking, and she's, we're just praying, and we're just asking the Lord to touch them. And, and, and my wife, she taps me. My wife is, if you know my wife, she's the sweetest. She goes, that's cussing at us. I used to work with her. I went, what? She goes, yeah, we taught school together. And they were, they were teachers at the same middle school. It was wild. I was like, oh my gosh. So we're, we're, for the next hour, we are getting slammed by this lady that doesn't recognize my wife. And uh, so we're gonna end you know, our prayer time and, and we, you know, we take our, little, it's kind of like, you know, because it's over your face if maybe she didn't recognize it, we take the little thing off and you could kind of see this lady, oh, oh, and, and we, I already decided I'm buying her lunch. <laughs> I'm going to buy her lunch because, I mean, for an hour, she's called us every bad word and, and all these things and Adolf Hitler's fan club and all these things and, uh, and I walk over to her, I go, hey, and Mary Beth goes, hi. <laughs> and it's like, oh, hi. And it's just really awkward, real step into the gap, awkward peacemaking. And, uh, and my wife just smiles so sweetly and says something just drippingly sweet to this lady. And, I, and, and she told me her name. I can't remember her name. But I said, hi, so-and-so. I said, Mary Beth, you guys work together. So good to meet you. <laughs> She's literally cussed us out for an hour. And I go, I just, can we buy your lunch? I want to take you to lunch. Just hang out. She's like, no. I go, well, here. And I, I slap 20 bucks in her hand. I go, go get whatever you can, whatever you want. Just enjoy yourself. I just bless you. <laughs> And, you know, I think she and my wife changed numbers. I don't know if they ever connected. But, I mean, it was one of those hot coals on the head kind of moments. But do you know, that's the spirit. I mean, thank God for the grace of God because I couldn't have done that in my own flesh. My wife, she just wears that. But that's the spirit that Jesus is calling us to step into. Now, I wouldn't tell you that I stood there with them, you know, assaulting us. Uh, verbally and, and felt like from the moment that they started talking that I was like, oh, I just want to bless them. I want to buy them lunch. I, I mean, I was like, oh, oh, God. Do you ever want to just strike somebody down? This is the moment. This is, come on. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Come on, you know. It's in fire. And he said to me the same thing he said to the disciples. You don't know what spirit you're of, boy. Bless those who curse you. Well, second part of love your enemies is do good to those who hate you. Now, just think about that. You have to do something good for them. You actually have to do good to them. That is, I mean, uh, what? How? What do I do? Buy them coffee. Find out their favorite thing. Find out their favorite color. 
buy them the, the, their favorite whatever. Do good. What are you talking about? I, I don't want, they're being, they're, they hate me. They're being violent against me. They're saying negative things. Do good. I, I love Jesus because where we want to throw in all the qualifiers, he just doesn't. He just leaves us dangling out there in loving our enemies by using our words and doing actions. See, because love is not something we only do in word, but in deed and in truth. And so if we're gonna love our enemies, we actually have to do good to them. And then he says, thirdly, and pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. And I just, I, I've just seen this in my own heart so many times when I had that person that was just tap dancing on my last nerves and worse. And um, the Lord, you know, I start, start complaining about them to somebody and the Lord goes, hey, 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 stop talking. And I go, but you heard what they said and God, you know, they need to get right. And he goes, you need to pray. That's right, I need to pray. God strike, he goes, no. Pray that I bless them. No, yes. Oh, God, bless them. Bless them, God. He says, no. I love them just as much as I love you. Now pray for their blessing. Oh, God. And by that point, I'm just all convicted up, you know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, God bless them, I'm asking. And then you get into this place of prayer where you start gaining God's heart for the person and all you want is to see them thrive, know the love of God, become the, the destiny that God has for them. He understands how to love enemies. He was pinned to the cross by people who hated him and he was saying, forgive. And he calls us to live the exact same way, which that's why often you'll hear me come against all these battles on social media because they're not Christian. I mean, it's Christians having them often, but they're not acting like Jesus. And if we could employ what Jesus said and, and really turn hard from the values in the, of the culture and turn hard into the values of the kingdom, we would make massive shifts in, in, in our sphere. And so when he's saying being a peacemaker, he says, do these things and the reward's the same as being a peacemaker. It, you'll be called the sons of God. It's the same thing. So he gave us the one, two, three on how to do peacemaking. All right, last one. I know, I should have given the altar call after uh, pure in heart, but sorry. We're on, the, we're on the last lap. So Matthew 5.10, let's le read this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he's just gonna go on and just add a little bit. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. He, he explains what the persecution is like. When they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says, if people are persecuting you because you're following me, you are gonna get paid later. Because your reward is going to be great in heaven. And, and what he's really trying to say is, don't blow it. Don't blow the reward by retaliating, getting in anger, coming back in the flesh. Don't blow the reward. What he's telling us is this also, by putting this one as the last one, if you'll live the previous seven, guess what? You get to do number eight. Yes, I said you get to do number eight, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake. Now what's interesting, there, there's so many ripples on this one, but, but I want you to catch, remember we talked last week about the chiasm, how he starts in one place and he ends in that place, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And then he's gonna end with blessed are the persecuted with the same reward, theirs is the kingdom. Now, now watch this, 
poor being poor in spirit, that's the doorway into the kingdom, okay? So what is he doing? He's giving us this reward of the kingdom. We get to receive the kingdom by being poor in spirit. And guess what else? The persecuted get the same reward. What's he saying? He's saying, if you're in the kingdom, you are persecuted. That's how it goes. He's making this connection with the reward being the same so that we get it right from day one of the value system that if you live righteously in this age, you will go through persecution. People will say things against you. They will lie about you. They will try to use you. They will try to misuse you. They will try to mistreat you. They, they will speak all kinds of evil against you falsely. They'll revile you. This is normal Christianity. I know, I know. Everything in our being says, I don't want to be persecuted. But Jesus literally said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your own cross and follow me. This is Christianity. This isn't country club. This is Jesus Christ, our God who was sacrificed by a, by a sin-riddled world, sacrificed in perfection. He was perfect. He was sacrificed for us. He says, if you want to follow me in my kingdom, guess what? Persecution is coming. And I know in, in America, we just... We just don't have a grid for this. But man, I, I've been to 30 plus nations and believers all over the world, they don't think like we do. We think persecution is like the worst, like, oh my gosh, I mean, what did you do to get persecuted like that? All over the rest of the world, believers are getting persecuted so often that it's, it's almost odd if you're not getting it. Now, in America, the persecution comes different than, in different ways than it does in, in other places, but oftentimes it just comes through, you know, weird kind of interactions with, with uh, people who just, they just talk down to you, they just demean you, they just, they just do, you know, difficult things to you. I remember, I, when I went, before I was in the ministry, I was, I was a... Um, I was in sales, and I remember one of the first jobs I had was selling cell phones. And, and I remember they, uh, the, the, um, the cell phones we sold, they, they were the kind that fit in a bag. Do y'all remember those? They put on your shoulder, like 10 pounds. And I can remember after, you know, and, and back then when you sold cell phones, that was, a, that was a whole lifestyle of itself because it was like rich people had cell phones. It, it wasn't... Um, something that everybody had one in their pocket. And, and I remember these, these sales representatives, they were making six figures plus just selling cell phones. And, um, and they were partiers and all this stuff. And they were just, they just wild lifestyle. And, and I can remember coming in uh, to my office and this happening to me dozens of times. And, and they would come in, they'd just start mocking me. Oh, we're gonna go out and get some drinks. You wanna come? Oh, yeah, you don't, you don't do that, do you? Yeah, well, have fun. You go home and sip on your lemonade. We're going to be out here acting like adults. Go home with the children. I can remember coming in my office, and I remember one day I come in, and this is vulgar. One of the, one of the sales reps, I don't know who it was, he had cut out a, a, a centerfold from some, some uh, pornography, and he had he pinned it up on the wall right in front of my desk. He put it right in front of my desk so that when I came in, I had no choice, but there's pornography right there. And I mean, then they're just laughing at me in the hallway. I remember this. This is horrifying. And this is just because they knew I was a Christian, just taking shots. I remember I, there was this one time they thought it would be a fun prank in our office. They, they hired a stripper to come in and they made sure they didn't tell me. And a woman came in, and we had, we had a mandatory office meeting. And this woman came in, and she starts, like, taking all of her clothes off. I'm, I'm diving under the desk. And they're all laughing at me. And, and, and you know, it just, at, at that time, it just felt like, well, well, that's just 
par for the course. That's just the territory we live in. We're in a fallen world. And, and, but I've watched believers become less and less willing to suffer persecution. Don't say it. You know, don't say anything about Jesus because, you know, they're going to they're gonna talk negatively on you. They're going to kick you out of here. And I just, I just know that that is not the Christianity that Jesus installed in the earth. What he installed was a, a Christianity that has a blessing declared over it that is normative that we would experience persecutions, mockeries, revilings, and worse. I did go running out of there when that stripper came in, just, just FYI. It was awkward. But I, what am I going to do? I'm going to run out of there. Flee sexual immorality. I remember that verse. I fled. So I want to just read a few verses as we close because these core values, if we really live them, guys, if we really live these, it will cause people some will be really inspired and, and moved to want to, to know Jesus more, and some will look at you so sideways. And it's not, the point isn't we have to try to act, you know, well, I'm holy and, and you're not. And, and we don't have to act that way. We can act very humble and meek, and it will still raise the ire, the, the negative responses of the unrighteous in, in many quadrants. I'll give you this, actually. Let me just give you this last thought, though. In that office, when it came down to my last day, it was wild. My last day in that office, I felt like I was in a pastoral counseling marathon because people were coming into my office one at a time and they'd say to me, hey, hey, you know, I know I made fun of you for the last two and a half years, but uh, man, would you pray for me? You're the, only, you're the only real Christian I've ever met. They'd say these kind of things to me. I mean, there's one guy, he said, I've got a problem with cocaine. Could you please pray for me? I mean, just wild. They were testing me. Why were they doing that? They wanted to see if it was real. And by the grace of God, I was able to hang in there. Somebody was praying for me. But let me read these verses for you. And I just want you to let the word wash over you in regard to this issue of persecution because it's what we're supposed to expect and, and not consider it strange. And I just wanna say this with gentleness but boldness. Days are coming where the American persecution isn't gonna be somebody putting a pin up in your office. What's gonna happen in America is gonna look much like what's happening in other parts of the earth. And if we're afraid of persecution, we're gonna wilt because people will sell themselves out just to make sure that they stay you know, safe. And I'm telling you, Christianity was never about being safe. Day one, first public sermon, Jesus says, you're gonna be persecuted. Blessed are you, blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness. Let me read these verses and then we'll pray. First Peter. Chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when, he, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. John 16, Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. First Peter 2, 19. It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
Most believers think Jesus suffered so I don't have to. Peter is super clear that Jesus suffered so we get to also. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Philippians 1.29, for to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Last verse, 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, I stand again under these values of your kingdom, and I confess that they are not perfected in me, but I want them to be. And I pray for our spiritual family, for these here, those listening, I pray, God, that we would see the necessity of living lives by the value system that you have laid out for us. So Lord, I pray the conviction that's on our soul, that it would turn into righteous action, that where we are in compromise in any of these areas, that it would be right now pointed out to us by the Holy Spirit and that we would have the grace to repent and turn away from values that are not like you and turn right towards you, embracing your values, living as wise people who build their house on the rock. They hear the sayings and they do them. So Jesus, I'm asking you, Continue to conform me to your image. Continue to conform us to your image that we would walk out being pure in heart with ambitions and motives that are for your glory and your praise. That we would walk out being peacemakers where we even bless those who curse us and we do good to those who spitefully use us. We pray for those who hate us. Where we live not afraid of being persecuted, but recognizing to us it has been granted that we would suffer on behalf of Christ when we live by the values of the kingdom. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. All right, God bless you. You are dismissed. God bless you joining us online. Amen.